It was supposed to be a new dawn, but the sun was taking its time to emerge from the presidential orifice. So, in 1984, the 40th POTUS, Ronald Reagan, declared that if re-elected, it would be morning in America again. A former Hollywood actor turned politician, Reagan bombarded the airwaves with his version of the good news. He seduced the electorate with promises of prosperity, stability, jobs and economic growth. Sound familiar? Meanwhile, the post-industrial badlands of LA were awash with disenfranchised blacks, Latinos and other members of the working poor who were waiting for the promised trickle-down wealth that never came. The film Repo Man records this moment in American history with punk attitude. So, in this episode, we're taking a metaphorical ride back to the future in a Malibu Chevy to visit the world of Repo Man. So Peter, what can you tell us about Repo Man? Repo Man is a film by Alex Cox, which was released in 1984, and in Australia was really only seen the following year. Uh, I've got the IMD synopsis up here. It's a fairly short one. I'll just read that out. Frustrated punk rocker Otto quits his supermarket job after slugging a co-worker and is later dumped by his girlfriend at a party. Wandering the streets in frustration, he is recruited in the repossession of a car by a repo agent. After discovering his parents have donated his college fund to a televangelist, he joins the repossession agency, Helping Hand Acceptance Corporation, as an apprentice repo man. During his training, he is introduced into the mercenary and paranoid world of the drivers, befriended by a UFO conspiracy theorist, confronted by rival repo agents, discovers some of his one-time friends have turned to a life of crime, is lectured to near-cosmic unconsciousness by the repo agency grounds worker, and finds himself entangled in a web of intrigue concerning a huge repossession bounty on a 1964 Chevy Malibu driven by a lunatic government scientist with top-secret cargo in the trunk. <laughs> it's a lot to put into a little film. That's because the film, I think like a lot of cult films, um, is a film that is referencing lots of different genres. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in this case, what have we got? We've obviously got a kind of like science fiction scenario here. It's a punk um, movie. It's a, yeah, it's a musical to, to some extent, even in, in terms of the, the prominence of the, the, the soundtrack and the importance of that punk mm-hmm. soundtrack. For me, the one of the biggest kind of like intertexts or references is, is noir. Um, yes. LA is the setting and the Repo Man embodies the kind of wise guy noir protagonist like quite well, I think. So there's a lot that is like mixed up. And to some extent, I guess uh, the film might embody what would now, or even back then, we, we might describe as a kind of postmodern aesthetic, that sort of kind of like mix and match approach to making art. So what do you know about uh, Alex Cox, the, the director of this film? Um, I suspect because you've done some more reading, you can do it. But I'll introduce, I'll get the ball rolling by uh, saying that I was interested to find out that he was, he started with law, studying law at Oxford. Um, 
preferred the idea of studying film, so I moved to Bristol University and then went to the mighty UCLA, uh, graduating somewhat significantly in 1977, the year of British punks, really sort of like the, the pinnacle of it. Um, and I think, uh, I don't know this particularly, maybe you can fill me in, am I right in saying that he brought that uh, British punk spirit over with him to his own projects and his own pursuits? Uh, I, I think so, because um, first thing, he looked like a punk. Mm -hmm. So he, well, I'll, I'll read you a description. So Michael Nesmith, the um, executive producer of this film. Ex-monkey. Ex-monkey, yeah. Uh, in his book, Infinite Tuesday, an autobiographical riff, which I highly recommend, it's a great read, he describes Alex and he says, and I'll quote from the book, he says, I liked Alex quite a bit as a person. He was imperiously tall, rail thin, with an orange mohawk, and a face that was jolly and cartoonish in spite of the threat of his intellect, which I thought was formidable. And the interesting thing about Cox is that he entered UCLA through the critical studies stream of the mm -hmm. film school. So he came to the art of making films knowing a lot about film history, film theory, film culture generally. Did he choose... That route, or he didn't really choose it because um, he couldn't get into the production stream. Okay, um, because there was a requirement that you had to have made a film uh -huh. to be accepted into the UCLA production course. However, mm. you didn't have to do anything other than I think provide a, a writing sample to get into the critical studies uh -huh. stream of okay. the film course. So that's what he did. He he entered critical studies. He took some film history film theory courses <clears throat> and then transferred into production and that's what he always wanted to do he wanted to make films but in making uh, his films he brought along that kind of critical sensibility which served him well later on in his career he hosted as you might know uh, a series called Videodrome I think for the BBC where mm -hmm. he would introduce you know often cult films films like Wicker Man and he would provide a kind of like five minute spiel about uh, what he thought the merits of the film were right. so he always had that kind of like intellectual scholarly aspect mm -hmm. to the way in which he approached film um, he made one film at ucla called edge city right. which is kind of referenced i think on that bus yeah uh, it's also Rupert the Man. production company I think. right yeah uh, so that was what that was his background briefly mm -hmm. and that's all he had done up to the point of like making Repo Man. So what we're describing here is someone who is a film scholar, but someone who doesn't have any kind of edge in the industry itself, albeit he's in La La Land. That's right. I think like going to LA though meant that he put himself in a uh, location where it was possible to make industry connections. Mm -hmm. Um, but he was also embedded in the L.A. punk scene. Right. And like Repo Man, and it, I mean, the interesting thing about Repo Man for me is that when I saw it, I didn't think of it as a punk film. Mm -hmm. uh, and that certainly wasn't something, the punk elements in it didn't really stay with me. But uh, I mean, and if you look at the way in which uh, Emilio Estevez, the, um, the protagonist of the film, is dressed. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't scream punk. I mean, in the um, 
Well, other characters are far more uh, outwardly or flamboyantly like that with um, gelled up, you know, flat mohawks and uh, uh, fishnet stockings, etc. Yeah. Well, on the uh, DVD commentary to the film, I think they make a joke, don't they, about um, Estevez's hairstyle, mm-hmm. that it looks like a, a lame that? attempt at, at a mohawk, yeah. you know, because he, he's got an earring. He kind of, you see him in like denims and boots. Uh, but he's, he's, got more, a, he's more timelessly... Um, stylish. Yeah. He's more brand and streetcar. Yeah. Or, you know, like his yeah. white T-shirt and, and yeah. jeans. It's very neat. Yeah. Um, and, you know, close crop. It's a, it, I wouldn't have picked it yeah. as a mohawk. And yeah. uh, they actually apologised and joked about it on the commentary we listened yeah. to. Um, but, yeah, it, it strikes me that he's... And I think that that's actually kind of as... Well, it's... It's practical because it means that when he makes the transition into suits, he does look more like a he could be a CIA guy. Yeah. You know, so he doesn't have to shave off his mohawk yeah. or anything like that. And also, it doesn't put him too far out of sorts when yeah. he's pogoing around and sort of like slam yeah. dancing rather around yeah. the, the back lot. But I think the key point is that punk is always more an attitude mm-hmm. for Cox than anything else, even yeah. though, you know, the description that I, I read earlier, um, and there's some. Of, describes him as this guy with an orange mohawk mm-hmm. and like images of Cox from that time certainly uh, convey the impression that he was, he, he tried to look a bit mm. like a punk yeah. in terms of the cliched uniform. But punk, I mean, what's your understanding of like when I talked about the punk ethos? I mean, what does that mean exactly to well, you? It, it means uh, anti-authoritarian, it means anti-mainstream, uh, do-it-yourself, um, <clears throat> and all those things that, that will add up to providing your own take on culture or your own culture, a kind of um, uh, self-aware subcultural uh, lifestyle, uh, as in giving the finger to the man, etc. And that's that's the way it's... There's a lot of cliché. I mean, I've, I've really just rattled off a lot of clichés there, which is true enough, which makes it a little difficult to describe, but I, I guess um, it's the politics of rejection of what the mainstream wants the individual to be. But also, uh, in rattling off that list, I think what you also do is provide a really cogent account of Cox's approach to making film. He is a punk filmmaker, Mm -hmm. and he embodies all of those values that you've just outlined. So the connection, uh, I guess, to punk uh, is not only through the LA punk music that's in the the film, and, Mm -hmm. you know, we do see... Um, some of um, Emilio Estevez's characters' friends, you know, outside yeah. of a punk club fighting, and so there yeah. are direct references to that scene. But it is also a film that does try to promote this ethos of not only being anti-authoritarian, but of doing things your own way. And I think yeah. that has marked Cox's career. I mean, he wrote a book called Film X. Uh, confessions of a radical filmmaker and in that book he talks a lot about deliberately rejecting uh, professional opportunities that required him to compromise his approach to filmmaking Mm -hmm. so I think there was a sense in which Repo Man perhaps more than um, you know the film that followed which was about British punks actually does have that sense of anarchy I, yes, and chaos. I would definitely agree with that. It's more, uh, from the ground up, it's far more of a punk film in all of those senses. 
Cox was embedded in the LA punk scene. Mm -hmm. He loved seeing punk bands. He yeah. knew uh, a number of them personally. The Circle Jerks, for example, mm -hmm. uh, provide the music, right. uh, the um, uh, diegetic music in, yeah. in, in one particular scene. The soundtrack to the film is notable for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it, it functions as a archive yeah. of that LA punk scene. So there are bands like uh, Black Flag yeah. that are part of that. Iggy Pop also. Um, Iggy Pop at a low point in his career after the, the Bowie resurrection, he sort of found himself at bottom again, um, described his involvement in the Reba Man film soundtrack, the, the song that he provides as being a spark to getting back up and to which he did, you know, throughout the, the rest of the ages very much so. And he attributes that. I was riding on a concrete slab Down the river of a useless slab It was such a beautiful day I heard a witch doctor Point I was going to make before for me um, is that in describing Alex Fox as being both scholarly and DIY and punky, and I do this my way, to quote Sid Vicious quoting uh, Frank Sinatra, <laughs> it reminds me of the Nouvelle Vague, the yeah. Godards and the yeah. True First, but also, even more so considering the result, more of the American movie brats who took their cues from the French New Wave. Mm. And he's kind of this happy medium between that's carrying the torch, if you will. And he certainly wasn't the only filmmaker in different episodes of this uh, podcast. We'll inevitably, you know, uh, collide against a few more of these people. But he's one of the first knowing, self-aware, this is the way I'm making films. This is what I look like. This is how I dress. This is how I think. And this is the movie I make. Would you... Oh, absolutely. No, you're spot on there. And I think... Um... What surprises me is the fact that when I first saw the film back in the day, and I think I saw it in 1985 or 86, I just, as I said before, I didn't read it as a punk film. Mm. Seeing it today, it becomes a little bit more evident how crucial that punk sensibility is to the film in terms of how uh, the production went and in terms of what the film is actually saying about the culture at the time. Because um, the things that did stay with me the supermarket scene at the start mm -hmm. where Otto, this is the character uh, played by Emilio Estevez, mm -hmm. basically tells, he's, he's a supermarket uh, worker and he tells his boss to fuck off. And mm -hmm. what stayed with, with me was the cans of um, generic items. You yeah. know? So you had like coffee, food, mm. drink. What, drink. Yeah. I remember that at, which is which then follows on to uh, the scene with his parents, mm -hmm. you know, where he's literally eating from, the can. from a can, yeah. which says food yeah. on it, you know. <laughs> so the point there is that the film really looks at what you might call the losers of LA 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you, the film is actually, the locations are fantastic. You, yeah. It's set in these sort of post-industrial wasteland-like mm-hmm. uh, spaces. You see lots of uh, Latino people, black people, punks, yeah. people who were not part of the Reagan vision, which yeah. was prevalent at that time. And I, I think, you know, there are lots of references to the kind of anti-Reagan aspect of L.A. as Mm -hmm, as a city. mm -hmm. And that's another thing that I think is really noteworthy about this film. It references the politics of the time. But another interesting thing which sort of like hooks up with the science fiction element is that, I don't know about you, but I seem to remember uh, maybe a little earlier than the 80s, like late 70s when I was still at high school, being bombarded by conspiracy theory documentaries oh. about UFOs. Okay. You know, Eric von Daniken. Oh, yeah. What was that? The like, Chariots of the Chariots Gods. Chariots of the Gods. And there was a Channel 4 documentary called Alternative 3, I think, uh-huh. which was another conspiracy uh, theory uh, documentary that came from around that time. This, this, this idea that, and I, I remember quite a lot about the Bermuda Triangle. Bermuda Triangle, a lot of Nostradamus. Yeah, not, definitely <laughs> Nostradamus, ufology as well. Because yeah. I, I, I got into those sorts of things, even as a kid, because they, they sounded like good, scary stories. I didn't yeah. actually believe that there were UFOs visiting or something. But the, the culture of it was kind of attractive because it was like the movies I liked. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that it was... So all of that was sort of like percolating in the culture and I think it connected with mm-hmm. science fiction, mm-hmm. with the Night Stalker on TV. And um, as you say, there's a sense in which those conspiracy theory narratives connect and intersect really well with the stories that I think both you and I found interesting uh, as adolescents. Yeah. Um, but, of course, we weren't the only people. There's another kind of interesting intersection between uh, conspiracy theories and science fiction and religion. Mm, um, mm. And religion is another important theme in this film. Well, it's it's the time of the rise of the religious right, the Falwells, Jerry Falwells and people like that, who a little before this, like in the late 70s, uh, uh, were organising and as a force, as a political force, in a more militant, more self-aware way they weren't just people who were religious who held conservative views that was more like uh the mega churches and things like that which were uh, mammoth pr- uh, pressure groups uh for political purposes and this had a cultural trickle down effect in um the that it must have been relatively easy to set yourself up as a televangelist and get a lot of you know prayer responses from people sending in you know, five bucks or something like that. If you get a thousand people doing that, you've got yeah. you know, five thousand bucks and more and more and more. And the the scene in which uh, Otto visits his parents um, and as you suggested before, has a very smarmy way of suggesting that he get the, the finishing school money, the grant money that he was going to get from them, his college money, I guess you could call it. He says, uh, do you remember how you said, if I finish school, you'd give me this money? Well, I'm going to finish school, but how about you give me the money now? So it's, it's yeah. like, you know, how... And by the way, I love you, Mum and Dad, which yes, he delivers yes. with total yes. and absolute insincerity. Complete. To his parents, who, by the way, are, uh, I think, like, the mother certainly is, like, toking on a joint. They mm. both look absolutely out of it while they're 
fixated on a TV, yeah. which is broadcasting a, a TV evangelist. Yes. Hello, mother, my father. Anything to eat? I do want your money, because God wants your money. So I want you to go out and mortgage that home, and sell that car, and send me your money. You don't need that car. Put it on a plate, son. You'll enjoy it more. Couldn't enjoy it anymore, Mom. Mm-mm-mm. This is swell. Dad? Hey, Dad. What is it, son? Do you remember? But you once told me a long time ago, well, not too long ago, but um, that you told me that you'd give me $1,000 to go to Europe if I finished school. Well, you know something? You were right about finishing school. That's, that's what I'd like to do. But um, I want to know if I can have the money first, like now. You know, I really love you, Dad. I've always loved you. You too, Mom. What do you say? I don't have it anymore. What? Your father gave all our extra money to the Reverend's telethon, Otto. We're sending Bibles to El Salvador. Uh, they don't make any eye contact with him. It's almost as though there's like the, the beam from the television is so compelling. Added to that is the spliffs you're talking about. Like they're they're completely intoxicated anyway. Yeah. They're all hippies, and they look like hippies too. Yeah, they're they're actually they've got the, the father's got this sort of like grey long hair, yeah. and you know as I said, the mother is sort and of that like, sort of blocky necklace he's got on, yeah, which is I don't know if it's hippie necessarily, but it, it it's something that you'd expect, yeah. you know, someone like that. But I think this generational kind of uh, divide is mm. another interesting thing about the film, and perhaps one of the reasons that we responded responded to the film so strongly in the 80s it was that uh, there was a sense in which the uh, preceding generation, mm -hmm. you know, the 60s generation, yeah. Michael Nesmith's generation, yes. you might remember Monkeys used to have this song written by Peter Tork or co-written by Peter Tork uh, that closed uh, the second season of The Monkeys. You know, uh, in this generation, we're going to make the world shine. And uh, by the time we came of age, Reagan, Thatcher, I think young people, regardless of their station in life, felt a resentment towards their parents and towards that kind of 60s vision. So yep. just like in Liquid Sky, there's this sense of cynicism that pervades mm. the film. Yeah. The, the fact that... Why the, bother? Yeah, why bother? The nihilism. I, yes, to follow on that. I mean, these days you call it boomer versus millennial. Yeah. God knows what happens to Generation X, which Otto is. Yeah. Um, but it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. And it's it's one of the, the earliest examples I know of in a, a, a film from that culture, from the US diaspora culture, which brings this up. 
that the people, the, the fans of um, the people who were at Woodstock, all those sorts of people either um, in other films, you can see them sort of donning suits and getting into corporate, you know, big corporate jobs because that's the perception mm. that the hippie dream failed because some of them got crushed by it and others just sell, sold mm. out. Mm. Um, I don't think Cox is getting around to the point of the latter, of talking about you know, that's what Gordon Gecko is in yeah. Wall Street later on in the decade. But he is talking about the ones who, like the, the homeless on the street, like uh, all the people who are getting their cars repoed, they are the, the victims of the American dream, of the failure of the boomers, mm. of the, the rise of the right, mm. of Reaganism, etc. Mm. And it, it, it couldn't be more poignantly suggested by that scene mm. where Otto's there, no, it's, it's fine, I don't need to eat this off a plate, it's not, no better, you know. And they're not even engaging with him because they can't, because they, they're completely switched on to this fatuous promise. Mm. Of, of salvation they don't, even, they don't even seem to be particularly religious it's just like there's a cause we've given it money yeah, yeah. as though they've just gone to a casino and, and you know blown it all on one-armed bandits or something like that to me that, that's the poignancy of that scene is we've blown it for you yeah but it is interesting that Otto does connect with the older characters the repo men mm -hmm. you know and interestingly these characters are all a little bit world weary and mm -hmm. cynical. They're engaged in a in a, a business which, after all, is about interacting with the lowest segments of society, people yeah. that can't pay their bills. Right. So, and you see the reticence on Otto's part, like when he uh, first meets them, because he's conned into becoming a repo. That's man. right. He's kicking a can down the road. Yep. You know that the scene that precedes that is really interesting. You know, he he's sort of. He's lying in bed with his girlfriend. She asks him to go and get a beer. When he returns, she's with some Suddenly. other guy. Yeah. And <laughs> so minutes. he's pissed off and he like wanders out of the apartment into the street. And then mm. you see him and he's sitting uh, in this sort of like wasteland like location. Yeah. And then he, I think he starts to like rattle off a whole series of like uh, song titles like Gilligan's Island. Well, TV titles. TV titles, it's, it's right. From a, uh, like like sample TV party. To our favorite shows. Saturday Night Live! Monday Night Football! Dallas! Jefferson's! Gilligan's Island! Flintstone! TV party tonight! Oh! 
the TV set all night. And every night, why go into the outside world at all? So that's really kind of interesting because As he drinks his generic beer. Yeah, by yeah, the way. yeah. And so by drinking this generic beer uh, and uh, reciting those lyrics, you really get that sense of disillusionment. Oh yeah, with well, the, the culture. The, the, the song TV party is about like turn your brain off. Yeah, just sit in front of the the football or whatever. You're yeah, that's right. Like Monday night football, yeah. Saturday, Saturday night, night live, yeah. blah blah blah. Is this all it fucking is? Yeah. Uh, but no, there is something more, and he discovers that something more when Harry Dean Stanton that's right. um, that's what I thought drives past in this uh, large American car and says, Hey, kid. Hey. Hey, kid. Hey, hey, you hard of hearing, Ace? What do you want? You want to make 10 bucks? Fuck you, queer. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, kid. You got the wrong idea. Look, my old lady's real sick. I got to get her to the hospital, okay? So what? Take her there. I can't. I can't leave her car in this bad area. Look, I need some helpful soul to drive it for me, okay? She's pregnant. She, with twins, she could drop at any time, all right? Well, uh, how much are you going to give me? 15 bucks. No, we'll do it for less than 20. 25. Follow me in my old lady's car. It's right here, okay? All right. Where's uh, where's your old lady at? Never mind about that. Right now, we got to get both of my cars out of this bad area, all right? Come on. I think rather than being intergenerational, it's a different thing there. I think it's... Um, he's excited. Otto is excited by the possibilities, almost like the adventurous possibilities of the work. I mean, at first he's kind of disgusted because of what they're doing. Yeah, and he, he, he pours up the beer when he's initially um, asked to become a repo man so after he's, he's inadvertently repossessed a car. And then he says, I'm never going to be one. And um, the receptionist paymaster says, well, now you are, and gives him his money for his, the job that he's yeah. just done, unwittingly. Yeah. And the cold, hard cash yeah. is not something that you sniff at, particularly you know, if you're a supermarket worker, we, not we, earning we, much. Um, well, an ex-supermarket is not quite like being an ex-draftsman. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a, it is a seductive world and it gets me back to this kind of noir element of the film mm. because the way in which Bud, the character that's played yeah. by Harry yes. Dean, uh, pitches the occupation to Otto as he says, he makes this distinction between civilians and professional repo men. He says... Ordinary people try to avoid tension. They try to avoid tense situations. We caught it. I never broke into a car. I never hotwired a car, kid. I never broke into a trunk. I shall not cause harm to any vehicle nor the personal contents thereof, nor through inaction let that vehicle or the personal contents thereof come to harm. It's what I call the repo code, kid. Don't forget it. Etch it in your brain. Not many people got a code to live by anymore. Hey, look, look at that. Look at those assholes over there. Ordinary fucking people. I hate them. <sighs> Me too. What do you know, kid? See, an ordinary person spends his life avoiding tense situations. Repo man spends his life getting into tense situations. Assholes. Let's go get a drink. We go in there because yeah, that's where the energy is. Energy, basically, that is the, yeah. that is the crux of it, isn't it? Yeah. Because it, it is exciting. There's a, uh, <clears throat> it's not 
quite crime, but it kind of feels like crime. Yeah. Um, it's not military, but it's violent, potentially. Yeah. yeah. And also there's a sense in which you get to play, like cops yeah. and robbers, yeah, yeah, car yeah. chases. Bud talks about the importance of dress. Yeah, so he you takes know, on the mantle. He, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, so you got to look like a detective. Mm. You've got to wear a suit, skinny tie. And he just epitomises this kind of like hard-boiled L.A. cop. You know, yeah. A lot of noir films, particularly neo-noir films, uh-huh. I think, do this, where they try to find an occupation that courts tension. I mean, in, in, in where, a, where are you putting neo-noir just for a second? I remember seeing a film, was it called like Croupier? Uh, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe 10 years ago, 15 okay. years mm-hmm. ago, mm-hmm. which, you know, has all the classic noir features. So it's mm-hmm. made in 2000 and something, yeah. but it's... But, like, but closer to the timeline, um, Blood Simple. Yeah, sure. Mm. Yeah. Very consciously noir in Texas. Yeah. But if you go back to the, the 40s, you'd often have these scenarios where, like, take Double Indemnity, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Fred McMurray plays a character who's in the insurance business. Yeah. yeah. You know, and uh, he's trying to find all the angles. It takes, of course, Barbara Stanwyck as the femme fatale to um, get him to... Uh, cross the line and game it yeah. and game the system mm-hmm. but it's that classic sense of you know it's an occupation requires you to engage with a seedy kind of world yeah. where you can potentially make money and you potentially cross all sorts of ethical lines as well so the repo man business is like full of these um you know situations where you have your life is potentially at risk, mm-hmm. um, that you're engaged in violent activity. Yeah. So for property. Exactly. For the interest of property, other people's property. Yeah. 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 Uh, but they seem to like get off on the adrenaline rush mm. of being in those All tents. of them are uh, action junkies, aren't they? Yeah. Everyone in that office is an action yeah. junkie. And, and interestingly, uh, you know, as a kind of aside, the. Action junkies in the Repo Man office are named after beards. That's right. Bud. Um, well, Bud the, and Light. Bud Light. Light. There you go. Miller. Well, yeah, Miller. Uh, I mean, Light and Miller are fascinating characters. Like Another thing about the film and the, and the sort of like noirish element of the film is the conversations, the sort of like patter, you know, and just the bizarreness. Like, um, for example, you know, Harry Dean Stanton is often giving... Emilio Estevez, you know, or Bud is giving Otto advice mm-hmm. about how to, how to conduct himself in these tense situations. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, they'll go off into strange territory. Otto says something and Bud says, you're not a commie, are you? Oh, that's right. You know? <laughs> yeah, because he, his, his line is, um, oh, they don't pay bills in Russia, it's everything's yeah, yeah. free. Yeah. And... Uh, Harry Dean doesn't want that to be a, the case. So he no, just says, you're not a copy. <laughs> right. So even though he's living in uh, living this kind of adrenaline junkie lifestyle, yeah. there's still that kind of like uh, American ideology. That... Yeah, but he, but he also says, I won't have commies in this car or Christians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Says, wow, okay. Yeah. But then we have another conversation in the car um, between Bud and, uh, sorry, between Otto and Light, mm-hmm. where Light starts raving. He says, you know, I've just, so Light is the black yeah. repo man mm-hmm. who um, is involved in a kind of full on shootout. Yeah, scene, yeah, you know, like the one that's going. Yeah. But uh, I think there's another point in the film, perhaps after that, that violent uh, gunfire exchange, where he says to Otto, 
And I've been reading this book, Diuretics. <laughs> Read the book I gave you. What book? Diuretics. Signs of matter over mind. Uh-uh. Well, you better read it. And quick. That book could change your life. Found it in the Maserati in Beverly Hills. You know what I mean? <laughs> and they had this conversation. You know, which yeah. obviously is a reference to Oron Hubbard and um, Dianetics yeah, yeah. and Scientology and so forth. It's got an X on the end of it as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. A, like a, an old new wave band. So that's the kind of motif that runs through the film, yeah. these sort of weird conversations about religion. But it, it is the tenor and tone of those conversations mm-hmm. that, are, that, that are quirky and kind of like give the film that, that kind of like gritty, noirish. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, there's, there's, what's her name? I can't remember the character's name, the girl. Um, she's involved. Lila. In, Lila. The young girl who looks about 12 in some scenes. <laughs> where he just thinks like Lisa Simpson. Yeah. Um, United Fruitcake Organization. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she has a big laugh, which is intentionally funny. It's a cheap joke, but it's a funny one. Yeah. Com- compresses to UFO, who are uh, an aliens cult. Yeah. And you, you don't see much of them. You see they, they appear towards the end where everybody's appearing. By the way, folks, spoiler-tastic towards the end of this conversation. If you don't want that... Go and see the movie and then come back to us. Um, so there's that as well. So everyone's kind of plugged into something. We'll get to Miller in a bit. Mm. He's got some other um, jazz going along there. And there's like the, the Taliban. So you're getting this, this image of a, a really kind of top-heavy but kind of sick society, kind of sick culture, mm. where everything's, everyone's plugging into this, this dream of, of, of something that isn't there, whether it be more or less... Well, even like you could call it a corruption of Christianity with a televangelist, which is not the way I see it. Um, you you ufologists or some, shall we say the name, Elron Hubbardish? Yeah, <laughs> we can we can edit that out. Uh, and and it, it, there's other stuff involved as well. And you get in the center of this the punks who are kind of rejecting all of that. And you're also getting the people on the street, homeless, who Otto kind of defends because, but has a particularly um, harsh view of them and, and, and a very odd misunderstanding of the whole credit deal, which his business depends on, you know, a corrupted view of. And he kind of voices that. And Otto's still punk enough to say, well, come on, that's, they're in this cycle. They can't get out of it. But the punks in the film are kind of, a bit flaky, don't you think? You oh, know, the, the, yeah, yeah. yeah, particularly uh, Otto's um, friends or ex-friends mm-hmm. who are holding up the, uh, um, you know, what looks like a 7-Eleven. Yeah. Um, and well, let, let, let's think about that's interesting because it's a really good scene. Um, uh, Otto goes in to buy beer or something like that and there's this uh, clerk behind the counter and he has no expression on his face. He looks very awkward and they go. And then two of his friends pop up like a puppet show yeah. with guns. And so it's been held up all the time. Yeah. And they, uh, <clears throat> you keep on seeing them both socially. Otto keeps them, uh, sees them socially. But you, as the audience member, you keep on seeing them as the hoped-for crime spree you know, is taking wing. The, they seem particularly inept at it, and it, there's a lot of uh, humour that you get out of that. Um, but that's also plugging into something. The way that auto plugs into the, the action adrenaline of uh, the Reaper trade, they're looking for a kind of a Bonnie and Clyde type of thing as well. So everyone's kind of got this thing. 
that they they don't feel any identity with that. I'm, I'm stretching that a little. No, I agree with you. I think you're absolutely right there. Um, but do you think Otto ultimately finds a, a, a place in the sun? The film, about three quarters of the way through, sort of starts the career in strange directions, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. And, um, you know, it, I mean, I guess we should ask the question, does the film hold up after all these years? I think... Um... I think generally it does because it, it's 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 funny, very constantly funny, uh, and it's funny now. Um, <clears throat> I think the aspects you're talking about with like the noir borrowing, they're pretty timeless now. Harry Dean Stanton, uh, his performance is just so riveting. Emilio Estavis as, as Otto, he's more of a cipher, isn't he? He, that he doesn't really express much. I mean, he's very good looking, he's very trim. And he's from Hollywood royalty by then, anyway, you know, Martin Sheen's son. Uh, but he seems, yeah, he seems more the rice needing the flavour which is given to him by the thing he gets into. So he's like there to be formed. Right up until the end when he makes that decision to leave the life he knows, including his Lisa Simpson girlfriend, um, and go on an adventure he, he only has a vague idea of. I'm not sure if you want to go there right now. Yeah. Well, I agree with you when you say that the film holds up. I think it does, and I think it, it is funny now. It's not uh, as though any of the, the set pieces or the jokes have um, dated badly. Mm. I mean, it still has some great one-liners yeah. in it. Um, you know, let's get sushi and not pay. Uh, and, you know, it, it, <laughs> well, they keep on saying as though it's generic. You know, let's yeah. go do some crimes. Don't forget the crimes. We've got to do the crimes as though we've got to pick up the shopping or something. Like but that. I also think it prefigures a certain kind of popular film, the sort of film that like uh, Tarantino made his reputation mm-hmm. with. And I couldn't help but think a lot of. Um, pop fiction when I yeah. watched this film. Fruit, the diner scene, the hold up diner scene. Well, there's that. There's the diner scene. There's the quotation that both films take from Kiss Me Deadly. You know, yeah. the box and Kiss mm-hmm. Me Deadly, which kind of mysteriously glows. We it's on the couch. We don't know yeah. what the fuck it is. But, we never do know. No. And we don't find out what, you know, the suitcase is in Pulp Fiction, nor do we really kind of, well, we get more of a sense of what the kind of like glow might be in Repo We've Man. only just mentioned that, and that's the yeah. opening scene. Well, the opening scene is classic. It is yeah. a brilliant, brilliant scene, you know, because uh, the film starts with a great title sequence, mm. you know, where you have this map of the Los Angeles area or the surrounds of Los Angeles. Well, New Mexico is Los yeah. Angeles. Poignantly, it's Los Angeles. Right, and the film kind of opens on this road. So you you get the hint that this is going to be a road movie of some kind. And it opens on a kind of empty highway. Sun is going down, very atmospheric. Cop pulls up to this car, which is driven by this absolute fucking maniac. Yeah, with with, like a pair of sunglasses with only one lens. Yeah. And so far, it could be two-lane blacktop. Yeah. But. Well, uh, the cop pulls the car over, and then you've got that beautiful sort of like reverse shot, um, you know, which we see so often, most famously perhaps in Psycho. Yeah, you know, where from within the car. From within the car, and you see the cop framed by uh, the car door, and uh, he asks the driver of the car uh, if he'll open the trunk, Mm -hmm. and he says, well, I wouldn't do that if I were you. 
cop goes around the back, he opens the trunk, we see the glow mm-hmm. out of the trunk, and the cop is zapped, and all that's left is a kind of like pair of smoking boots yeah. as the car mm-hmm. drives off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. When Michael Nesmith, the executive producer of the film, read the script, he said on that first page, he thought, he asked himself the question, do I want to know what happens? Hell yes. Yeah. So it's a great opening sequence, yeah. beautifully shot, incredibly atmospheric, sets up so many of the themes in yeah. a very kind of concise way. Really great opening, yeah. uh, which then it is a hook, which means for me, yep, play it on. I want to see yeah, what happens. Yeah, it, and it's, it's mostly maintained, but it was leading to a conclusion in an earlier uh, understanding of the film, some of which was shot, that wasn't, was chosen against. Yeah. Personally, I think given the ending that we had, I think it's the better one. Yeah. But it was far more apocalyptic yeah. uh, ending that when you added up the different uh, scenes where people were dangerously close to opening the boot and getting zapped themselves or do, in fact, you know, get zapped because that happens, but either happens and you get tension out of that. Um, that would have led to this particular thing which would have been perfectly logical. There are other scenes towards the fairly messy sort of middle act that are left in, I guess, because they kind of had, because it's still a short film, it's only just over 90 minutes. You still get, it with the ending, this is where I'm going to, the end, with the ending that we do get, there is at least this arc by which at that time, at that stage in the story, the entire car is glowing white. Whatever's contained in the boot is no longer contained. It's turning into this extraordinary thing, um, this sort of illuminated car, which um, we may as well mention is done. It looks fake. It looks like really odd sort of TV sort of sci-fi effect, but in fact it's, it's a couple of uh, tins of reflective paint. Yeah, which glows. Which glows so much that it looks like the car's sort of, in, the image of the car's imposed later. Yeah. Well, it is on the, you know, the flying scenes, yeah. but it, it, when it's just parked there, it's just there. This is the Chevy Malibu. That's right, thing, which um, is the MacGuffin of the... Yeah. yeah. But interestingly, throughout the film, there are references to what might be in the boot, because I think there are references to the driver of the car being a scientist who is connected with the neutron bomb. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you remember back in the 80s, the neutron bomb was this incredibly scary yeah, thing that terrifying. its radiation would kill people but leave buildings mm. unharmed. Property. So that fits in yeah. really well with that kind of Cold War yeah. anti-communist thread that is sort of bubbling below the surface. But then... Uh, I think as one of the people on the commentary, I don't know whether it was Cox or Nesmith, they say, you know, a film um, finds its ending and that ending uh, was not scripted. Well, it it came up as they were shooting the film, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, Well, let's describe the ending so the people will will prelude that by talking about Miller. Yeah. Miller is the kind of guy that you would have uh, met at three in the morning at a party when you were 18 and he was maybe 30 and was telling you about how fig trees are really Martian or from you know Jupiter or something like that. And if you touch them, and the, he would have some weird theory about yeah. the way everything in the universe was connected and it would just sound like bunk. But you didn't care that much because you were so doing I, I think I, I met a few Millers in that era. Many, many. A lot of people don't realise what's really going on. They view life as a bunch of unconnected incidents and things. They don't realise that there's this, like, lattice of coincidence that lays on top of everything. 
I'll give you an example, show you what I mean. Suppose you're thinking about a plate of shrimp. Suddenly somebody will say like, plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp, out of the blue, no explanation. No point in looking for one either. It's all part of a cosmic unconsciousness. You eat a lot of acid, Miller, back in the hippie days? I'll give you another instance. You know the way everybody's into weirdness right now? Books in all the supermarkets about Bermuda Triangles, UFOs, how the Mayans invented television, that kind of thing. I want to read them books. Well, the way I see it, it's exactly the same. There ain't no difference between a flying saucer and a time machine. People get so hung up on specifics, they miss out on seeing the whole thing. Take South America, for example. In South America, thousands of people go missing every year. Nobody knows where they go. It's just like disappear. But if you think about it for a minute, you realize something. There had to be a time when there was no people, right? Yeah, I guess. Well, where did all these people come from? Hmm? I'll tell you where. The future. Where did all these people disappear to? Hmm? The past? That's right! And how'd they get there? How the fuck do I know? Flying saucers. Which are really... Yeah, you got it. Time machines. I think a lot about this kind of stuff. I do my best thinking on the bus. That's how come I don't drive, see? You don't even know how to drive. I don't want to know how. I don't want to learn, see? The more you drive, the less intelligent you are. The thing about it, though, he's talking relatively so. I think he might have a, a beer in his hand, but he's, he's not drunk when he's talking about it. He's actually quite convinced of this. And he's not really being boorish about it. He's speaking quite calmly. Um, like an old hippie might of, you know, growing his own tobacco or wacky back, something like that. But he sounds like it's, it's knowledge that he's actually come by, at least that he's convinced of it. It's, it's not sort of, he's not a casualty. And he's saying this to Otto, who's this punk kid, who's rejected all, everything he's been, you know, given, like the pictures of the aliens, which ends up when you freeze frame, there's two condoms, you know, filled with water, with, the, with hula skirts on, something like that, which is why he laughs, you yeah. know. Um, anyway, so Miller tells him about this notion that not only are there aliens, things that appear in the, from the sky, visitors that appear in the sky, but they are all time travellers. So they're actually earthlings who have, I think this is the way it goes, who have means to travel in time. You have to get to the speed of light first, but you can do it. At the end, the last scene, when the car is glowing, when the car is whatever it is in the boot, has taken over the rest of the car, so the car's almost pure energy by this stage. And all of the people who can't approach it, all the, the hazmat-suited guys, the, the televangelist with his Bible that gets zapped, all of them are getting re rebe uh, repelled, repelled, yeah. repelled from the, the car itself by this light lightning effect. Um, the only person who approaches safely is Miller. So that might mean he's actually not only aware of it, but he's in on it. 
perhaps. I don't know. I think that's the implication that his, his knowledge was firsthand. Yeah. And he beckons Otto yeah. to join him and that's the way it ends. And it's a, a, it's a lovely little uh, bit where Otto is on the ground uh, with his girlfriend Lila mm. and uh, I think Light is, is there too. Uh, you know, there's that kind of three shot of these yeah. characters and Lila says, just as Otto is sort of transfixed by this glowing um, car, she says, but when she realises he's about to make his way to the car, she says, but what about our relationship? Mm-hmm. And he's not even listening to yeah. her. And then she says it again, what about our relationship? Fuck that. Yeah. And he walks to the car and off he goes. Yeah. Interestingly, Cox says that... Um, the actor playing Miller came across so well that they that he felt that he wanted to do more with that right, character. Right. And I think that was that partly informed the ending. But it's a far more elegant ending, oh, I think, yeah. than what um far more original. Yeah. And it also then brings together all of those strands, yeah. you know, and you know, that kind of Well, the, the ending we're talking about that we haven't actually mentioned is um and uh you can see it in like deleted scenes. Is that the car gets so uh, impossible? What's in the car gets so impossible to contain that it basically blows up, and Los Angeles um, yeah. is destroyed in a nuclear holocaust. Yeah, that would have been the end. Yeah. So another big bang, like the you know that you've already had apocalypse now, and you've had you know a number of other sort of things because that was in the air. And Alex Cox, I heard a, a recent podcast, um, the movies that made me. He's still scared of it, but I, I remember that was in the culture to be scared of uh, nuclear. Holocaust from the warfare of the evil empire versus the bland empire. Oh, absolutely. It was the time of Star Wars. It was the time of... Um, Star Wars meaning the... the um, not the film. <laughs> not the film, no, no. It was the defense, the, the defense yeah. system that uh, Reagan um, touted as, uh, you know, making the, the USA invincible. The doomsday mission. Yeah, the doomsday so, mission. Which, yeah. through mutually assured destruction, which was the idea that the two warring giants who had the ability to turn Earth into a crisp um, were fended off each other by this. It's the strange love, Dr. Strangelove mm. scenario that actually came true, you know, the brinkmanship mm. thing. Uh, by Because people forget, they think the Cold War has been in the 1960s. The Cold War went right up until mm. the end of the 80s. And Reaper meant right in the middle of that. Um, so it would have been perfectly forgivable to to end it that way, but then when you compare with what's got, with what you have uh, in the, the final one, you think, impressive, but so what? This has adventure to it. This has a... And that's a quality of the film that I think persists. It is an adventurous film. It's an experimental film. Um, and it's made up of so many different strands. Mm. There is this almost surreal quality to a lot of the scenes, which mm-hmm. I don't think have dated. It actually strength, strengthens the film. I think it becomes really evident that um, the film Repo Man dramatises a certain dissatisfaction with the state of uh, American society in the middle of the 1980s. And there is certainly a kind of political thread that's important to the film. I just wonder how the film might be read today by people mm. who are in their 20s faced with uh, you know, climate crisis mm. and um, 
you know, the continuing debacle of trickle-down economics. And, uh, you know, it's one thing for us to say, well, Repo Man stands up today. But I wonder what a, a, a contemporary audience, uh, or more specifically an audience of young people, would make of Repo Man. Uh, I mean, we'd have to ask them. But I just wondered what, I mean, do you think there's enough in the film to kind of engage people I think this, 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 there are things on the streets in that film, within the world of the film, that you're seeing today on the streets of any city in the world. Yeah. Uh, increased homelessness, for example. That's there. That's on the, the streets of LA. Uh, it doesn't, you call it a punk scene, but it doesn't have to be a punk scene. It's young people getting together and um, doing it for themselves. That kind of thing, I think, would still appeal. Um, whether or not the... Uh, adrenaline slash cops and robbers slash crime blur that gets Otto seduced into the Repo Man work is convincing now to someone who's about 20 or not. I don't know. Mm. I would suggest maybe not. But then I'm, I'm assuming because yeah. I, I tend to think young people tend to care more about the world around them. There's pure naive <laughs> rose-colored glasses of the future, I think. But these are also people who, as a generation, have been uh, left... The, the bummest of deals as far as their future goes by our generation and the one before ours, which might be another cue for them to sort of look at it and go, you bastards, look what you've done. I don't know. I think... Yeah. That's a very good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's maybe, uh, um, you know, something that we need to underscore, that if you haven't seen Repo Man, mm-hmm. young people, if yeah. any of you are out there listening, yeah. take a look at this film because I think, uh, you know, you, you've just made a really good case for the way in which it resonates with things, with issues um, that we really need to address today. You have been listening to Ushers to Ashes, a podcast about often overlooked or underappreciated aspects of popular culture in the 1980s. This episode was produced and edited by Peter Chetnikoff and Glenda Cruz.